His word is powerful. It brings life. Uh, it's really what creates. It's what creates uh, life. And he created the universe. He creates spiritual life through his word. He sustains us. He refreshes us. He directs us. He trains us. He does all sorts of things through his word. And so it's a priority for us. And so we, as a church, um, go through series in different books in the Bible. And we are in the Gospel of Mark right now. The Gospel of Mark is uh, a wonderful gospel, an account of the life of Christ. It's a biography of Christ, uh, different than a modern-day biography. Uh, it's a biography really with the intent to draw our focus on Christ and to demonstrate who he is, to show his glory, uh, and in that to really call us to follow and to show us really what it looks like to follow. So those two themes are really major themes in Mark, uh, being amazed at Jesus and following Jesus. So we are continuing. Last week, we looked at the triumphal entry as Jesus rode into Jerusalem as king. Uh, but an unlikely king, a king very different than any king of the world. And this week now, he is in Jerusalem, uh, and he comes back the next day to go into the temple. He's surveyed the temple the previous day, and he comes in this day to go into the temple and to really to cleanse the temple, or actually to bring judgment to the temple. Um, this story maybe is familiar to you, uh, but it's a story that really shouldn't become overly familiar. It's a story actually full of uh, strength of words and emotion. There are some strong words. And this story in some ways should shock us a little bit. I think of it as kind of like being around when you're watching someone else uh, get disciplined or get in trouble. Did you ever have that happen to you? I guess growing up you probably were around your brothers and sisters when they got in trouble. Um, I think of it as, you know, if I were around one of my friends as a kid and and we went out for a day to the beach and just were hanging out, had a great time at the beach. We're you know, playing football, hanging out, and then went back after a day at the beach and found out that he had been grounded the whole day and was not supposed to go anywhere. And then I had to kind of be there while his parents you know, uh, got upset with him and then grounded him for life and all that. It just would be awkward. It's really awkward. I don't know if you've had that situation. You're kind of like, whoa, well, I mean, well, this is a little awkward. I don't know what to do. A story today is like that in many ways. It's, uh, there are stories like this, uh, being around, others getting in trouble that are more serious. Um, I, I think of, uh, in my life, I've seen some real serious situations that I've witnessed. And there's a sobriety that they bring. There's an awkwardness in them, but there's a sobriety that they bring. Uh, in my life as a Christian leader, I've been around when uh, four different pastors actually had to be publicly uh, rebuked and removed from the pastorate uh, for significant, persistent moral issues and failures and leadership failures. Uh, it wasn't done lightly. It wasn't done quickly. But when it was done, it was very sobering. Uh, two of the men uh, were friends of mine, fairly close friends of mine who I knew fairly well. Uh, and it, it, was, uh, it was a sober, heavy moment. It, there was impact on their lives. There was impact on the church, their families. Uh, there were career impacts. As well, these, all these men were middle-aged men who had to make a career change, essentially, at that point in their life. I remember it vividly. I remember it with sobriety. When we are around, when people are disciplined, when there's either corrective or punitive discipline that's brought, it leaves us sobered. And that's what those experiences did in my life left me sobered, but also another sense that I brought from those times was just a desperate longing for the grace of God. 
So sobered by it, realizing, wow, this is serious stuff. God really is holy. He really is right. And he really does mean these things. And then, help me, Lord. (laughs) Help me, Lord. Give me grace to stay close to you. To not give in to the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. Give me grace. So there's this two emotions, two thoughts and feelings, sobriety and desperation for grace. I hope as we read this story today and as we think about it today, that those will be the two results of our time. There'll be a sobriety, realizing that Christ rules and reigns as king and judge, but he's also a gracious king, and he's there for us, and he calls us to desperately believe in him and depend on him and walk with him. So let's pray and ask God to do those things, and then we'll read his word. Lord, we thank you for these truths today. We thank you for this story, this account. We thank you for who you are. And I pray, O God, would you reveal yourself to us as we dig into your word. Would you show yourself in your holiness and in your graciousness. Would you create in us sobriety and also a desperate dependence on your grace. Lord, change us. Make us like you. And use us to do the things that you would do, O God. Bless your word, the reading of it, the hearing of it preaching of it to these ends and to the glory of your name we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please follow with me in Mark chapter 11 starting in verse 12 reading through I'll read through verse uh, 25. And it says and on the following day when they came from Bethany he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. 
God's word from Mark chapter 11. This story uh, fits all together. You, if you were listening and following along, you saw that there was this incident with the fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree. We're going to get into that and explain that. You may be wondering, why did he do that? Curse a fig tree? The poor fig tree wasn't even the season for figs, and Jesus curses the fig tree. What was that about? There's the cursing of the fig tree. Then there's the cleansing of the temple, as we call it. He goes in and he cleanses the temple. Really, he, he brings correction. He brings judgment. It's corrective, and it's really punitive as well to the temple. And then the latter part, the next day, is another account of the fig tree. And they see the fig tree totally withered. And then Jesus has a dialogue with his disciples about that. There are three things here. There are two stories of the fig tree, the first part and the last part. And then there's a main story in between. What uh, Bible commentators call this is a Markin sandwich. Mark makes these sandwiches in Scripture. And actually, you can go through the Gospel of Mark. You'll find eight or more times when he does this, when he takes uh, uh, two stories and weaves them together and kind of has a, 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 the pieces of bread, the, the beginning part, and then a link to the end part, and then a core story in between. And that he uses that structure to really emphasize a main point. He's after a main point. He's tying it all together to basically communicate to us a main point. So you could look throughout Mark and see it elsewhere. Um, it's in um, when Jairus' daughter is healed. Uh, he goes to heal her. He gets interrupted by the woman who had the chronic bleeding, and he heals her, and then he goes and heals Jairus' daughter. That's a Mark and Sandwich. Uh, when he commissions his disciples, he sends them out. Then there's the account of John the Baptist. Do you guys remember going through that uh, as a church? And then there's the, the disciples come back to him. And so he's sandwiching that story about John the Baptist in there to say something about what it means to be his disciple. Um, the anoint, later on, we're going to see the anointing at Bethany during this Holy Week, uh, which goes on for the next uh, chapters. We're going to see Jesus where he goes to Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. He's anointed uh, there. But right before that, there is the plot to kill him. And right after the anointing in Mark is mentioned Judas' betrayal. So, so Jesus' anointing by Mary is sandwiched between his betrayal by two different groups. So those are called Mark and sandwiches. They're to make a point. So the point here is, well, he's sandwiching between the fig tree account, the temple. And the fig tree is a symbol of fruitfulness or lack thereof in Scripture. Actually, if you look through the Old Testament, it's used a number of times to speak of fruitfulness and to be used as a prophetic word against Israel, calling them to fruitfulness or saying you're not fruitful. And the fig tree is, is used as a picture. Why? Well, because it was a common tree. Everyone was familiar with it um, in, that, in that time, in that land. Fig trees were everywhere. And so it's used as a picture, and it's used really as a representation of Israel. And so what Jesus is doing here, and what Mark is doing and pointing it out, is he's bringing judgment. He's bringing judgment on, really, the temple and even the, the people of Israel, at least the people of Israel, the Jewish people, under the present establishment, the present leaders who were, by and large, had drifted from God. So he's bringing judgment. So just as he treats the fig tree uh, and curses the fig tree for its barrenness, he comes to the temple and he addresses the temple and addresses the people for their barrenness in producing fruits. And so that's really the point in the story, and I want you just to understand that as we dig in here. 
And, and if you look at parallel accounts in the Gospel of Luke in particular, you'll see that actually Jesus explicitly says what I'm saying. He comes to Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem, and he says, if you had only known what would make for peace in the hour of your visitation, but you've missed it, and not one stone will be left on top of another. He says that explicitly in Luke. So that's what's going on here. Jesus is speaking really a prophetic word. And he's coming in as the fulfillment ultimately of the temple himself in his life in ministry and person, who he is. He's the fulfillment of the temple. He's the place where we meet God. He's the place where there is sacrifice to atone for our sins. He's the place of, of communion with God in him and in his body, really the church now and his people, but Christ himself. He's the fulfillment of the temple and the, and the the locus, the central, the focus point of the people of God is now shifted from physical Jerusalem and physical temple to Jesus and the spiritual Jerusalem, the spiritual, the people of God, the people of faith. And in this process, he's also judging this. So that's what's going on. That's background. So let's take a look and, and dig into this. And I want to talk about three different things. I want to talk about his right to judge the temple. I want to talk about the reason uh, for judging the temple, and then a response. That's the last part of the text, a, a, a response to the judgment of the temple. So first, the right to judge the temple. Jesus rides into Jerusalem as king, as the rightful ruler over God's people, as God himself in the flesh, as the Holy One, as the one who has jurisdiction over the temple. The one who rightly rules over the temple, the, right, the one who rightly governs the worship of God and, and the practice of his people. He has full rights over the temple. He comes in the night before, the day before, and he surveys the temple. And now he comes back on the next day, knowing what's going on there, to really judge the temple because of their failure to produce fruit, their failure to walk in faith, their failure to walk in desperate dependence on grace. That's so important to realize in this story, guys, when we talk about judgment. It, it does make us sober. And it does force us to really get to the conclusion that, look, I, I'm hopeless on my own. I'm in trouble. I can't stand before judgment. I, I can't be holy enough and good enough for God. I need help. And the answer isn't to somehow pull yourself up by the bootstraps and be holier and, and do X, Y, and Z and you know, wear a longer dress or, or whatever it might be. That's not the answer. The, the answer is to run to God for grace. Desperately depend on Him for grace to abide and to stay close to Him that your heart might be holy, that your heart might cling to Christ. So that's what's behind here. That's the story behind the whole Bible. God is never bringing judgment and then imposing the law. The law is good and holy, but He wants hearts that depend on Him for grace and thus walk out the holiness of the law. That's just important to understand as we go through this. So he comes to judge the temple because they have failed to run to him for grace. They have failed to see what the temple itself is about. It's about meeting God. It's about depending on him for atonement, for forgiveness before a holy God. It's about fellowshipping with God. It's a place of prayer. It's about producing the fruit that flows from a life like this. And so he comes to judge the temple. He has the right to do that. And it's important to understand by extension that he has a right over the temple now. He has a right to judge, to bring correction, to bring even punitive judgment if he so chooses over 
his temple now. And the temple has shifted from the physical temple in Jerusalem to the people of God, all the people of faith, everywhere. People who have trusted in Christ and his death and resurrection, believing that he is God in the flesh. Everyone who turns from sin and believes him is forgiven, and you are, you are at that point a temple. God himself dwells in you. It's amazing. And the temple also is the corporate people of God. When we gather together, God is here in our midst. This is not just a gathering of people who happen to think similarly in some way. This is God's people. And everywhere throughout Haverhill, a number of churches, dozens of churches, and throughout this area, there are temples, places where God is dwelling with his people right now. Throughout the world, it's a wonderful thing to think about Sundays. And this is the temple, and that's very clear in Scripture. I can show you a couple verses that talk about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about this idea that they, as a local church, the Corinthian church, are a temple. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. He's speaking of metaphorically, of them as the temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple, he goes on to say, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Later on in 1 Corinthians, he he addresses individual believers as temples. So this is the whole church as a temple. And he goes on to address individual believers as temples in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you are a believer and have trusted Him, He lives in you. You don't own yourself. He does. And you are the dwelling place of His Holy Spirit. By grace, in response to His love for you and His grace towards you in Christ, you are to steward your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are to walk in holiness because he dwells in you and he loves you with a fierce love. You are to love him back. He has a right over his temple. He has a right, just as he does in this story, to judge the temple. He has a right to bring discipline to our lives, to bring corrective, even punitive discipline in our lives. And this should sober us. This is a reality. It should put the fear of God in us to recognize this, to make these connections in this story. Like Gene McClellan says in the uh, old gospel song, put your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. Every time I look into the holy book, I want to tremble when I read about the part where the carpenter cleared the temple. For the buyers and the sellers are no different fellows than what I profess to be, and it causes me shame to know we're not the people we should be. There's a sobriety as we read the story and we recognize we are that temple. We are in Christ that temple. So let me just ask you, do you live in proper sobriety before God? Does the fear of God operate in your life? I think it's a a quality that has really diminished greatly in our culture, the fear of God. 
And the fear of God is just this, the recognition that He's God. He's mighty. And He's holy. And it's His universe, not my universe. I don't get to do whatever I like. There are consequences. I can run, but I can't hide. He's good. And He's great. And He's gracious. So it's not a a, a servile fear thinking that he's just going to randomly, capriciously do something terrible to us. It's a respect for a holy, great, and good God. Do you live in the fear of God? Does that shape how you think about your life, how you think about your decisions? And and for you as a believer, if you're a believer with us, does it determine your choices? And really, if you're not yet a believer, we're glad you're here. And we want to give you time to think through these things. It takes time. We respect that. And you'll find a family that's a loving family here. But, but we would want to ask you to consider this truth as well. The fear of God. It is God's universe. And these stories are here for our good because these truths are real. He stands as the king and judge over his temple. There's a, a verse that I've been mulling over lately, another verse, and, and I trust this might help you in this. As I've been thinking about these things, actually, I, I've been going through 2 Corinthians and as part of my regular time uh, reading the Word and praying, praying through the Word. And there's a verse in 2 Corinthians at the end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7. And, and, and the Apostle Paul gives us a picture, I think, that, that really helps me, and I think it would help all of us, to understand how we live in the fear of God. How we live these things out. And it says here, it's speaking of us being the temple again. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And Paul says this profound statement. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to, holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's last part is from chapter 7, verse 1. The promises of God, of His grace and blessing for us, His love for us, all these things He wants to do in us. And the fear of God operating together to create holy people who want to live in the promises and who recognize it's God's universe and He rules over His temple so we avoid letting our lives drift into sin and selfishness and self-centeredness and away from God. We pursue Him and we live under those promises. And we come alongside each other. We lock arms in small groups and in relationships to help one another to live in the hope and the truth and the power of those promises. So are you running to those promises? Are you recognizing He has the right to judge His temple? And so you're running. Are you running to grace for strength and help? He calls us to this. And it's It should be sobering. And I can tell you guys stories. You probably have your own stories. I have wonderful stories to celebrate people who do run to grace. This room is full of such stories. Um, 
It's just a wonderful thing to do VBS together and watch the grace of God working, touching lives through people whose lives have been touched as well by grace, who are producing good fruit. But on the other side, there are stories I have that are sobering of people who did not recognize this truth and and, and got sloppy and thought, I can just do it on my own, and they drifted away from God, drifted away from grace, drifted into idolatry, drifted into other things, bit by bit by bit, and suffered consequences. That's, in some ways, my friends who were removed. That was part of the story. God used that situation to bring restoration and help actually in all four lives. I can tell you good stories. There was good fruit in all four lives as a result of those things, as hard as it was. But I know other stories. I've witnessed things firsthand. I remember praying for a man who was constantly dabbling in serious sin. He was a believer. We prayed for him for help. And he still was dabbling, and, and um, we prayed for him, and then, and then all of a sudden he was gone. He, was, he died. Died of an overdose, slipping back into drugs, not seeking help. It's sobering. In, in Corinth, the people of God are, are dabbling in sin, and God's bringing sickness, and He's bringing even death to them. So I just want us to be sobered by that and just recognize that. We, we can treat the grace of God um, and we can take it for granted and just think, well, whatever. But we should be sobered by this story. We should be sobered by these realities. And we should run to grace and rejoice in grace. That there's forgiveness and there are promises and He's for us. And He wants us to, to live in Him and find forgiveness and find power and to stay close to Him. So He has the right to do these things. We must recognize that and live in it and define our lives by it. Next, the reason to judge the temple. He comes into the temple and there are reasons why he comes to judge the temple. There are, there are particulars that are going on in the temple. Actually, let me just quickly take you through a little layout on the temple so you can kind of understand what's happening as he goes in uh, into the temple area. The, the temple itself is not just the temple building proper. It's a whole complex of buildings. It's a whole... Uh, area, a fairly large area, and actually we can show those pictures, Carter. Um, so here's the temple. If you were in Jerusalem looking up, walking through the streets looking up, this was the temple on the Temple Mount. So it's the highest point of the city. It's this huge, beautiful place. Uh, really one of the, I believe it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Just glorious. That's what it looks like. Next slide. And if you came, you would come up and you would come in through one of the, there were many entrances, but um, most of the entrances or majority of the entrances would come up and you'd come through this colonnade, all these columns here that surrounded the outside. All right, so that's how you would enter into the area. Then the next picture, uh, that's an overview. So you would enter through those columns and then there was this large courtyard outside. Okay, if you can go to the next one, Carter, and then stay on that one. All right, that's kind of a, a bird's eye view. So you'd come up through the edges there, through the colonnade, and there was this large open area. That open area was called the Courtyard of the Gentiles. And that was an area where anybody could come. Anybody. You didn't have to be a Jew. You didn't have to be a convert to Judaism. You could be anybody. You could come and be in that courtyard. And that was to be a place of prayer and seeking God. There was a fence halfway through that courtyard, a low fence that they had put up. 
doesn't say anything about it in the Bible. It doesn't say, you know, you should do this. They had put it up at one point that kept the Gentiles from getting any closer. And there were warning signs on, on that fence. Do not cross uh, under... Basically, you'll take your life in your own hands, is what it said. Your death will be your fault if you cross this boundary, if you're a Gentile. That's how serious it was. The history, actually, of, of the temple includes a number of very violent stories where there were Gentiles that were thought or did cross that. There were... Uh, there was violence on both parts that went on. So they were very sensitive to Gentiles being in the temple area. They were very concerned not to desecrate the temple with a Gentile going any further than that fence. But if you were journeying in, if you were a convert to Judaism or a Jew, you could journey past that fence and enter in closer than those outer walls around the central temple. You go through there, and then there, there was a courtyard, uh, the courtyard of women. Uh, so women could come up to that point. At the, that point uh, in their practice... Uh, the women didn't go into the inner courts. There was an inner court in there, and that was where the sacrifices were held. That was where a lot of the singing was led from that. You could hear the singing throughout the whole complex, but that was kind of the core of, of where the worship was, the, the basin to wash and the place to sacrifice on the altar. And then there was the temple. Those were before the temple building itself. temple building itself was the place where, where God himself dwelt, his presence dwelt, his presence dwelt really in the general complex, but this was the, the special place of his presence. There was the holy place. And there's a lot of symbolism in the things that were in there. Then there was the holy of holies, the very place, the cube inside the temple. By the way, in the book of Revelation, uh, Jerusalem is a cube, a perfect cube, which represents the, the, the holy of holies. That, that The new creation, we dwell in the holy of holies with in the presence of God himself. So this is the layout here for the temple, the temple area. What was going on was that the outer courts, the Gentile, the court of the Gentiles, had been cluttered with people buying or selling things, buying and selling things for worship. So there was a place, there were people selling doves and whatever else was part of what you might offer in sacrifice. There were people there who were exchanging money because in order to give to the temple, which you would do in the inner courts, you had to exchange your currency because they would not accept the, the common currencies, which a lot of them were dedicated to, to Caesar and so forth. So it was considered sacrilegious to, to have a coin that had an image of Caesar and so forth on it. So you had, to, you had to exchange that for legitimate coinage for worship. And so that whole out, outer part of that, you can put that back up, uh, the whole outer part of it was cluttered with people doing commerce. And that's what's going on. That's what Jesus comes in to deal with. It's interesting that because of this commerce, they had effectively shut out from the temple complex Gentile worshipers. And Jesus comes in in his judgment on the temple on this particular issue. And really, this issue spoke to deeper issues, to, to heart issues that were behind their actions. He spoke and he said, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You guys have excluded the Gentiles from approaching God by filling up these outer courts. And you have preferred commerce and, and the business that comes to you from it to prayer and to reaching the nations. You've exchanged these things. And they had, they had effectively desecrated the temple ironically themselves, by excluding the Gentiles from the outer courts through all that was going on, all this money changing. They had fallen short 
And it wasn't just this issue. This was a, just an, a key issue. Remember, he curses the fig tree before, and then we see it wither afterwards. So there's more at stake than just temple practices. There's a heart problem with the authorities. The, the authorities, the people, their leadership had drifted from God and had failed to produce good fruit for God, the fruit of faith, the fruit of desperate dependence on grace. It was empty. They had lost their purpose. They had lost a true heart for God, a true dependence on Him, a heart for His purposes. They, they had lost their purpose of being a city on a hill for the nations. They had lost their purpose of being a place of communion and worship and prayer with God. And instead, they had become schemers and political, shrewd politicians, manipulating things, promoting their power base, all under a shroud of religious devotion. And Jesus was coming in judgment against this corrupt worship. He would not have it this way. So he cleanses the temple. He drives them out. He knocks over the tables and the chairs. He doesn't let anybody carry any goods of commerce even in the courts. It's quite a scene that goes on with Jesus. And he's proclaiming this truth. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. You have made it a den of robbers. It's God showing up at his temple. And they miss it. The authorities at least. This action actually cost Jesus, humanly speaking, his life. Because they see it and they determine at that point, it says in the story, to destroy him. We need to destroy this guy. He's putting an end to this thing we got going. He's causing trouble. At the end of the week, he will be destroyed. Not because they merely chose to, but because he chose to allow himself to be killed, to bear sins for his beloved people, to free us, to make us worshipers, true worshipers. This is the reason God wants worshipers. God wants people who come to Him in prayer, who depend on Him, depend on His grace. He wants people who have a heart for the nations. People who want the temple to be a city on a hill to shine forth that people might come and see and taste and see that God is good. He wants people who produce good fruits People who depend on atonement to cover their sins, not self-righteousness. He wants good fruit. He expects good fruit from his people. Because when there's real life in his people, when they get, when we get these truths, there will be good fruit. And when we maintain these truths, there will be good fruit. And that's all of grace, but it's also all, it also depends on you running to him. It isn't passive. God's sovereignty is not to produce passivity. The fact that he's in control, the fact that he determines who would belong to him never is meant to be an excuse not to pursue him ourselves. Those truths have to go together. We must recognize it's all of grace, but we must be desperate for grace. And ask God, keep me, O Lord, 
Would you keep me? Would you help me? Would you help me run to grace? Would you keep me from finding my satisfaction in other things? Would you keep me from being distracted? Would you help me? Would you grant me power to grasp who you are in your glory? Would you remind me of the gospel? Would you remind me of what's at the core of the temple? You want me to dwell in your presence. You've invited me to belong to you, to fellowship with you, and you provided for me, you provided for us through the death of your very Son, through Christ crucified on the cross, bearing our sin, paying for it through His death, bearing the holy justice of God, and rising again. That's the core. That's where the power is. That's the center of the temple. When we recognize and get atonement and His amazing love for us and His invitation to walk with Him, to live in forgiveness and extend forgiveness to each other, to live in fellowship with Him, the power of His presence, that's what produces all the rest. And that should be our orientation. Lord, help me. Help me abide, abide in these things. Help me live and dwell in these things. Help me depend on the grace that is mine in Christ. And if you are not yet a believer, you are invited into this temple. There's no, there's no clutter in the outer courts. And there's no fence. You can walk in right now. You can walk in. And you can put your hope and faith in what God has done in Christ. That He sent Christ to die for your sins. To pay for them so you could be clean right now and forever in Him and counted as His own, welcomed into His presence. That invitation stands, and I'd love to talk with you more about it. You just can merely believe and express that belief in faith to the Lord. He rules and He reigns over His temple, and He invites us into this relationship with Him. And that's what's going on here. That's what's going on in this story. There's more to it than, than just the particulars of that day. There are all these truths throughout Scripture, the themes throughout Scripture, and the call to us today to live in light of these. Actually, in the last part of this passage, Jesus gives us a response to the judgment of the temple. There's a response. What happens is he judges the temple, he cleanses the temple, and then it's the next morning, they're, they're going back into Jerusalem, and they walk by, and there's that fig tree that he had cursed the day before, and it's totally withered, down to the roots. It's just shriveled up. It's dead. There's nothing left. There's no fruit-producing ability anymore, and there never will be. And Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So he sees it. He points it out and talks to Jesus. And then Jesus' response to Peter is, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And he goes on to talk about a life of faith, believing God and asking boldly and not doubting, and the, and the results of that, even, and he's speaking hyper, hyperbolically, of uh, 
saying to this mountain, be cast into the sea from the Mount of Olives. You could probably, I think you can see the Dead Sea. So the idea you can take this mountain and have it cast in the sea. That's what, that's what happens when you believe God. And then a life of prayer that flows and expecting and receiving and, and receiving and extending forgiveness to others. And if you read through that, you might think, well, this is, like, this is kind of like a, a side point here, I think, that's going on. Because, you know, I get the fig tree, the, the judgment, and the temple, and now this is, a, a, this is an account about, you know, how to make miracles happen. Just believe hard enough. That's what Jesus is saying here. And I think it is related to that. That is, uh, his response to Peter is, have faith in God, and you'll, you'll see great things happen, like this miracle of the fig tree. But Mark and God lot smarter than that. I don't think this is just like a thing, a throwaway passage. It fits in the context. You can read through the whole context. Next week, uh, we'll see how the context continues about his authority. So this, is, this fits into the whole story. It's not just how to, how to pray and see miracles happen. It's really how to live in contrast to how the Jewish leaders were living. They had walked away from God. They were not believing God. They were not seeking God and believing Him for answers. They were not desiring Him to be glorified. They were not living in forgiveness and extending forgiveness. So this is a picture in contrast of what it is to look like to relate rightly to God, to experience proper worship. This is what proper worship looks like. Prayer, faith, forgiveness. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's instructing on the contrasts. And he's calling his disciples to have faith in God, to believe God, to keep their focus on God. This isn't a passage about how faith can do wonders. Don't take it that way. When Jesus says, if you have faith, you can say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, he doesn't mean just faith in general. It's assumed it's faith in God. And it's only that you can do this because God is great. Not because your faith is great. God is great. God does whatever he pleases. God can do anything he wants. And when you believe him accordingly, you can see him do anything he wants. You can see him do great things. And so he's calling them to this life of great faith in a great God and asking for great things to be done, to live this way, to have faith that's so big that it believes that God does indeed do anything he wants. So big that you would ask for the Mount of Olives to be thrown into the Dead Sea. So big that you completely and totally expect God to act according to his promises, according to who he is. That's the sort of faith that he wants from his people. That's the sort of worship that he wants. People to believe God according to how great he is. I love William Carey's quote. Believe great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Believe great things from God. Attempt great things for God. If you read his life, he did that. To this day, uh, the impact of William Carey's life is felt in India. This is what Christ calls us to. Because God is great. And God is a God who does cataclysmic things. He's at work in the earth today doing great things. He changes lives. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He changes lives for eternity. People that are dead in their sins and care less about God are transformed in an instant by Him to love Him, to believe Him, and to follow Him. This room is full of miracles. And the world is full of His glory. He's at work in the earth even today. 
The nation of Nepal right now is being transformed by church planting and people coming to Christ in mass. This is a nation steeped in Buddhism and Hinduism, being transformed by the hand of God. And I could tell you more about things going on in China and India, throughout the world. Let's believe God according to who He is. Let's live in the proper worship of God, trusting Him, praying, living in forgiveness, extending forgiveness, and watch our God do great things. He's a God who changes the course of nations. July 4th, we, we watched uh, a little bit of the program uh, God in America by P- PBS. It's been around for a little while. And there was a section in the program on the Cane Ridge Revival. Has anyone heard about the Cane Ridge Revival? Ever hear of that? Cane Ridge, Kentucky, just outside of Lexington. It happened in the early 1800s, and there were just a handful of churches that got together to seek the Lord. And they would do this thing. They would have this weekend service. Actually, they were diverse churches. They were Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian churches coming together. Um, and these are all had in common their love for the Lord Jesus, their love for the gospel. And they would come together for worship and preaching, and it would do, start on Friday, and they would meet into Sunday, and then on Sunday they would share communion together. And they had done that previously. And God had been begun to work in certain ways, and had begun to pour out His Spirit, and there was fresh just conviction of sin and repentance and new faith and new life going on, but in small bits and pieces. And there weren't that many people. They met at Cane Ridge, and there was a meeting house there. It could only fit 500 people. And they met there, expecting maybe at this particular time up to 1,000 because there was a growing enthusiasm for what God might be doing. This is August 6, 1802. They met, and people came. They started worshiping. People came, and they came, and it was uh, 1,000 people and then 2,000 people, then 5,000 people, then 10,000 people, then up to 25,000 people showed up over the week. They, they didn't just stop on Sunday. They kept on going. They kept on preaching. And people were praying and seeking and experiencing the power of God in such a way that, that there was conversions. Lives were changed. People were renewed in the things of God. At that time in history, by the way, there was a serious decline in Christianity late 1700s, early 1800s. And the roughest part, the the darkest part of of the country at that point was the modern-day Bible Belt. The frontier, Kentucky, down to the south. It was dark. There was no interest. Kentucky had, in the time it had tripled in size, I think over 10 years or so, tripled in size. The churches had declined 10% in that same time. And they were declining not just by people passing on, but they were declining by church discipline. Things were so bad. Sin was so rampant in the churches that there were people having to leave and being asked to leave churches through sin. That's the, that's the situation. There was a malaise, a spiritual malaise, an indifference. People were greedy and immoral. Serious problems going on in the frontier. It was a very dark place. I think it was darker than anything we have right now. And yet this, these handful of believers came together to seek the Lord. Pastors who were from different groups came together to seek God. And God did something. And the Cane Ridge Revival touched 25,000 lives. And and during that week, uh, the Spirit of God was so powerful, just people were were crying out, they were singing, they were groaning in repentance. It was just loud. Actually, one man said the noise from the crowd was like Niagara Falls. It was so loud. And they were singing. I mean, it was singing as well, mixed in. And from that place, revivals started throughout the frontier. 
And that Cane Ridge Revival really was the spark of what's called the Second Great Awakening. And it transformed the country. It transformed this city. Adoniram Judson uh, and, and uh, Anne Heseltine uh, came from the fruit of that. If you, you can read the history of the church around the corner and the, how they were touched. This city was changed. The whole country was transformed by that Second Great Awakening. And, and much of what we value now comes really out of what God did in that time. The Bible Belt actually is the Bible Belt today because of the Second Great Awakening over 200 years ago. It wouldn't have been. It would have been the Dark Belt if it hadn't been for the Second Great Awakening. God transformed it. And out of that revival came all these social movements, came the uh, abolitionist movement, came other things, work reform, all sorts of things out of the, in the 19th, uh, 19th century. That really shaped and transformed our country. We would not be the country we are now, and we would not be the force in the world we are now if it had not been for that revival, if it had not been for the Cane Ridge meeting, if it had not been for those handful of believers who came together and believed God for who God is. This is what Jesus calls us to. This is the sort of worship he wants. This is the contrast to what he saw in the temple and if the bank could come up as we close. This is who he wants us to be, King of Grace Church. He wants us to believe him. Be desperate for his grace. Depend on him. Pray. Receive forgiveness and extend forgiveness freely. I do wonder, maybe I can't say, but I do wonder whether, whether what kept the people of God from seeking God might have been unforgiveness among those different denominations. Something happened that the Baptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians, and if you know their history, that's a surprising assembly of different pastors. But they came together. And I would not doubt if it was forgiveness. From that place of forgiveness, God created faith. God was pleased to answer in revival. So as we close, I just want to ask you what you would believe God for. What would you ask God for? There's all sorts of things you can ask. We can ask for revival. We can ask for Him to change the course of our nation and the world. We can ask for Him to revive us as a church. You can ask Him to revive yourself personally. Maybe you are in the place where you are more resembling the leaders of the temple, than the person of faith and prayer and forgiveness. So ask for personal revival. Maybe you can just simply ask for this week as we do Vacation Bible School, Lord, would you work? Would you open blind eyes? Would you touch families and children to know the gospel, to find forgiveness in life? Would you work? Would you change us? That might be something to ask for. Change me as I serve. Make me totally different in how I live. Oh, I would love to see the Lord work wonders through the people serving. I know He's going to do that in many ways, but may, may He work in such a way that the course of your life is changed. Well, that what you want to be, and how you want to serve, and your vocation is altered and transformed for good through this week. So before we close in song, I just want you to take, I encourage you to take a minute, close your eyes, and ask the Lord for one of these things or something else. And then we'll close in prayer. Close in worship.